Welcome back to another totally pointless, uncool, stupid, idiotic episode of Point of Insanity Game Studios Geekery in General Podcast. That's a way to sell that up there. Yep. And yeah. speaking of things that are pointless, stupid, idiotic, how you doing, Dan? You forgot sexy. <laughs> okay. So today's episode Sexy Handsome. Oh. We were going to talk about jazz, right? <laughs> jazz. Jazz, 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 jazz. No, nope. jazz! Uh, well, we are actually going to be talking about heavy metal today. And would you say it's possible to be a heavy metal geek? <laughs> are you kidding? Do you know how many of those people I've met? Yes! <laughs> so, yeah, because I know there's... Usually there is quite a bit of overlap between gamers and metal. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, not, of course, not every gamer I've met uh, liked you know, likes heavy metal, but I or think a I've lot seen of them. The most Iron Maiden T-shirts. But I know there are a lot of gamers that are into metal. Because uh, when I would go to Gen Con or just talk to people at conventions, a lot of times there were people that did. You know, we could talk about heavy metal. So I don't know. It's just something gamers tend mm-hmm. to like heavy metal. So that is the subject of today's episode. The, going to be a very metal episode today. So let's start with. How did we get introduced to metal? So what is your earliest memory of heavy metal? And what got you into it? Akadaka. For those of you who don't know the reference, it's ACDC. It was ACDC. Um, I, I was a big fan of a couple of their songs, even though I had no idea who they were, until one of my cousins left one of his ACDC tape cassettes at our house, and I found it, and I listened to it, and I go, holy shinolis, that, <laughs> I caught myself. Yes, that, you did. That, that's that song that I really dig, so, um, also, a lot of the guys in my scout troop uh, played a lot of stuff, too, so, yes. uh, right away, I was uh, introduced to Metallica, Iron Maiden, Megadeth, Slayer, Halloween, Dokken, they like Dokken, that's the one, one of these things is not like the other, and Dokken <laughs> would be that one thing. I don't know. I'm not too familiar with Doc, and they had a few good songs, but they weren't a band that I listened Take to a good lot. Look so. at the cover of uh, Under Lock and Key. <laughs> they don't look anything like the rest of those groups. They <laughs> yeah, look like uh, extras out of um, the Mannequin movie. Yeah, for me, there's two people that I have to credit for getting me into heavy metal. Uh, the first is my sister. Uh, my older sister was into heavy metal, and we've I know you talked about this on one of your uh, episodes of Radio Free Borderlands, where uh, we would, when you would come over to hang out at my house. Tapes. Yes, we would. Back in the days of the cassette players, we would go up and we'd uh, steal my sister's Iron Maiden, uh, Anthrax, Halloween tapes, and we'd go down and we would listen to them. We forgot Zeppelin and Ozzy. Yeah, and for too. some strange reason, Robert Plant solo records actually don't sound very. They're not very metal at all. Actually, the Robert Thanks Plant Percy. albums were mine. Oh, they were yours. They were mine. Well, yes. they're good records, but they weren't very metal because Percy decided to go new wave. I don't know. Yeah, I liked them, but um, I know Led Zeppelin's interesting because oh, we'll talk about them in a moment here. But uh, yeah, for me, uh, my sister is probably the one that got me into metal. But she actually got into metal from my cousin Jason. Uh, he plays in a band. Uh, he used to play in a band that is big in Milwaukee called Nine Millimeter Solution, uh, where again they're more of like a. I saw them in concert once, and they're more like a almost like a rap funk metal band, at least from uh, the few songs I remember that they played. I've heard of them. But yeah, of course, there's tons of different types Wasn't of metal. Was he also in Mortiskold? Yes, he was in a band called Mortiskold. I think they, I'm not sure if they reunited or not, but they opened for Slayer once, so that was pretty cool. Um, but yeah, my cousin, Jason, was the one who introduced uh, my sister and I to bands like Iron Maiden, Metallica, uh, Black Sabbath, Though I don't think my sister was really much of a Sabbath fan, um, you know he was—I know he was also into a lot of the thrash metal bands like uh, Exodus, uh, Anthrax. I'm trying to think of some of the other ones, but so those are the ones that those are the two people who really got me into heavy metal. So why do you why do you like heavy metal? What got what is it about heavy metal that 
spoke to you that really got you hooked into you know the wailing guitars and screaming high-pitched vocals and album covers that look like something out of your worst nightmare well i disagree with some of those things but um well in general you know what i mean yes i do um well first off i know there are people out there who are going to disagree with me on this one but um I didn't find the lyrical content as vapid as most pop music. Yeah, that's. I have to agree with you on that. That's mm -hmm. one of the things that really got me hooked into metal. Is I liked the subject matter a lot of of, of a lot of the lyrics. It's because of course a lot of the pop bands in you know back when we first were introduced to metal back in like the 80s, you know a lot of their songs were about you know finding a boyfriend or girlfriend or, you know, going out and partying or sappy love songs. Well, yeah, it's still um, on today, but... But, no, I mean, like, look at Metallica. Master of Puppets is considered one of the, the, the best metal songs of all time. It's about as anti-drug as you can get. Um, Slayer has a couple of... Uh, anti-war songs that people don't realize are anti-war songs until they actually, you know, read the lyrics. Yeah, and that's a lot of them do have uh, substance to them. And even one of Molly the things, Crew, yes. people think "Kickstart My Heart." Oh, that sounds like a pathetic, you know, this, that, the other thing. Probably uh, chicks and drugs. Ooh, no, that was actually about them coming clean after Nikki's overdose. Yeah, and. Now, some of the stuff I'm going to talk about today, um, I, a few episodes ago when uh, Casey and I were talking about urban legends and creepypasta, we mentioned, of course, the lost episode creepypastas. And there is a lost episode of this show because um, several months ago, Josh Hadley from 1201 Productions and I tried to do an episode about heavy metal. I asked if he wanted to join us today, but unfortunately he's busy and he wasn't so he wouldn't be able to do it. But uh, he, I remember from that discussion, we did have, he did bring up some interesting points. So some of this stuff I am going to credit to uh, mm -hmm. to Josh. Unfortunately for that episode, there was some technical issue with my program where I was only recording my side of the conversation. Um, so he, one of the things we talked a little bit about was the difference between punk and metal because a lot of times they are linked together. Uh, would mm -hmm. you consider punk and metal to be related, or like one a subgenre of the other? No, I wouldn't call them a subgenre, but I think they're definitely related. Um, to be honest with you, punk was almost a um, it was a reaction to the '70s metal if that's what you want to call it. Most people who look at heavy metal nowadays would probably look at those bands as pretty tame. Um, but that was actually their way of rebelling against that. Um, punk at the time had a more DIY um, attitude and, and way of doing things. They stripped down a lot of what was going on. And um, especially at the beginning, a lot of the lyrical content was almost I don't want to say purely, but it was very, very, very saturated into the realms of politics. Yeah, that's one of the things Josh uh, mentioned as well, is that a lot of it was very politically charged, mm -hmm. criticizing government and uh, people in power, in, which is something that we do see in a lot of heavy metal songs as well. But, but both both genres seem to move. They branched apart. Yeah. Um, like some of the really good punk bands of the time. One of my favorites is the Dead Kennedys. They started um, becoming influenced by other types of music, and you started to really see that where, you know, metal started going faster and, and influenced by other things than, than punk was. So, yeah, and also another thing we talked a little bit about is uh, metal and hard rock. Would you, what would you see as the difference between those two? I mean, we, when Josh and I were discussing it, we were, uh, we were of the opinion that the hard rock is best defined as more tuned down, radio friendly metal. Which I know I personally always thought that hard rock was kind of hard to define because 
it's in between things like you know your standard rock and roll, if there is such a thing. Not anymore. And you know heavy metal. I think it's such a gray area now at this point. It's hard to say. You could listen to some ACDC and think that's metal, but they think, no, we're more blues rock. Uh, Motorhead does not consider themselves a metal band, for example. Yeah, and I I know there have been several bands that have been disputed as metal or not metal, like Van Halen, Led Zeppelin, Def Leppard. That's another band I forgot to mention was one of my early ones that I was really into. uh, Def Leppard. Interesting thing about Def Leppard, you kind of watch them soft out. Um, Yeah. Their first two or three albums were definitely, especially on through the night, was definitely in the veins of what was going on at the time in Britain, the new wave British heavy metal. And then once um, Mutt Lang got got on board, he really tried to make them more accessible. But at the end of the day, he took that 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 sound that they had created at the beginning and um, basically threw it out the window. Yeah, because I really liked um, On Through the Night and High and Dry. Mm -hmm. Uh, Pyromania I really liked as well, but I don't know. Once they got to Hysteria, they started to lose me. And I think, of course, part of the... It wasn't bad. But, of course, one of the things we have to talk about with Def Leppard is their drummer Rick Allen was, of course, in the accident where he lost one of his Mm -hmm. arms. So, you know, he had to learn, of course, how to play, you know, one-handed, and that definitely changed their sound. Um, some other bands I've heard that have been disputed, uh, Deep Purple, Deep Purple Aerosmith. was a metal band. Aerosmith, yeah, kind of. Depends yeah, on how yeah. you look at it. Um, so, I think what you got to do is you got to go all the way back to the history to really see why some of these groups are considered heavy metal. Okay. Um. And one of the things you, you got to know is there really wasn't a heavy metal as a genre back in the late 60s, but it kind of existed. Um, it had its roots in the psychedelic blues rock scene that was going about. Um, the heavy metal scene really owes a lot to the Yardbirds, to the Stones, to even the Beatles. Oh, yeah, I mean, some of the Beatles the stuff, like, I know, was mm-hmm. pretty heavy for its day, like uh, Helter Skelter. Um, that's the one I, that, that can, I can think of off the top of my head. But, mm-hmm. yeah, for a while, they when they weren't doing the whole hippie, uh, peace, love type stuff from Sergeant, like Sergeant Pepper. Well, I don't know, was Sergeant Pepper's more of the hippie stuff? or Magical Mystery Tour, that's the one mm-hmm. I'm thinking that was kind of psychedelic, but they did have some pretty heavy songs for the time. A lot of people, especially in the metal scene, think Clapton's pretty lame, but you know, when Clapton was was, was playing in Cream, and uh, John Mayall's Blues Breakers, and um, even the Yardbirds for a while, I mean, he was very influential on in the scene. You really, they do owe a huge debt to Clapton. Mm-hmm. He was one of the guys, him and um, Cyril Davies and Alexis Corner, they started bringing this blues scene that they had heard about from Chicago and the Delta scene to London, where all of this new technology was coming in with the electric guitars, the amplification. Then you get Hendrix, who added in the psychedelia and the feedback. Yeah, and you, I mean, you definitely see a lot of bluesy influence in some of the earlier works by like Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath. Uh, like Days and Confused, I know is one song that's very bluesy and ripped off. Really? Yes, Joe Holmes. Joe Holmes wrote that song. Uh, Page and Plant just modified the lyrics. That was that song was pretty ripped off. Yeah, and I I've only heard a couple of songs off of uh, Black Sabbath's first album, but mm-hmm. I like one of them, The Wizard. That one again sounded very bluesy. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was psychedelic. The psychedelic scene. So it was more or less a sign of its time it back was, then. Where yeah, it was. You took the psychedelic scene, the blues scene, the you know the distortion and feedback that Hendrix made popular, and you mashed it all together, and this is what you got. Um, arguably, probably the first real heavy metal song. A lot of there are people who agree and disagree, but I, I think you can really point it down to. A, 66 or 67, the single electric version of Revolution by the Beatles. It's about as heavy metal as you can get. Mm, for um, the time. <laughs> yeah. Then you started to get, um, there was, you mentioned Helter Skelter off the White Album. 
um, some early stuff from the Who. The song, like the song, you remember the song "Boris the Spider"? No, I don't. "Boris the Spider" was off of um, a quick one by the Who, and it's probably one of the first instances where you hear somebody do what eventually becomes the death metal growl. It's Roger <laughs> Daltrey, I think, is just trying to be funny. "Boris the Spider." And that now all of a sudden, you know, 40 years later, half half the guys from Tampa Bay, Florida are singing like that. What about Jethro Tull? Would you Tull? consider them metal? No, no. Because I know too, they... They were too folksy. Um, I would consider them awesome. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, they really got some... like Jethro Tull, but I wouldn't. Because um, didn't they, like, didn't they Metallica lose, like, a Grammy to them? There was a Hard Rock Heavy Metal performance yeah. category, yeah. It was... In, um, it, it was... Everybody thought either Metallica was going to win that one or Jane's Addiction. And most were shocked when they found out Jethro Tull did. Um, and I was too because the two, it was like, um, it was Injustice for All and J- Jane's Addiction's, uh, was it Nothing Shocking or Ritual? Yeah, and was Rituals, it? one or the other. When they announced it, weren't there people in the audience booing? Because I know there was oh, a lot remember. of negative feedback. And actually, it's kind of funny. I remember uh, Alice Cooper was hosting some sort of awards show afterwards. And when he was... Uh, in announcing the winner of some metal category, he's like, and the winner, Jethro Tull! And there, then there's a moment, no, just kidding. But I don't know, Alice Cooper's pretty cool. That's the kind of guy he is where I understand he's like a real, mm-hmm. he's, because Do- our friend Dawn, you know, who's been on my show a few times, he's met him, or she's met him, and uh, supposed to be a really nice guy in real in real life. Um, a lot but, of people consider the first metal album, it was by a Detroit band called Blue Cheer, um, called Vincibus yep. Eruptus. And um, check that out. They, they they do a really blistering version of Summertime Blues that uh, is really great. Um, but of like the big well-known heavy metal bands, a lot of people think it was like uh, Led Zeppelin. Oh, Led Zeppelin. Actually, first one was Deep Purple. Deep Purple, oh, yeah. Shades of Deep Purple came out in late 67, early 68, one or the other. Um, and their cover of Hush became actually a very big hit in the States, even though they never really got the popularity. Um, Led Zeppelin did the same thing. They came to the States and became huge. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but the one that probably sticks out in most people's mind is the first metal album that, that you would listen to even now and say that's metal would be Black Sabbath's debut album. Uh, was it released Friday the 13th, 1970? <laughs> yeah, and... So the so getting back to the subject of why we like metal and this is one of the things that again why I felt it mm-hmm. it spoke to me and I know Josh had this opinion as well where you know it spoke to the people who were the disenfranchised white youth and he made a comparison on one of his shows where uh, you know because and on his on his show Lost in the Static mm-hmm. uh, him and his old co-host Scott did a episode on the satanic panic Mm -hmm. and I know he talked a lot about heavy metal on that episode and he was uh, saying that you know it's like okay yeah rap that spoke to the disenfranchised black youth where heavy metal was and punk spoke to the disenfranchised white youth Mm -hmm. Um, so in a way I can certainly see that Um, now of course it doesn't mean you know white people can't like rap or black people can't like metal you know whatnot but um, another thing that I personally always liked about metal was just the variety of the subject matter. I mean, you'll have metal bands that will cover just about any subject. I mean, let's talk about Iron Maiden for a moment. I mean, could you picture, let's say, Justin Bieber doing a song about Miyamoto Musashi, the legendary samurai, or singing a song about a science fiction novel, or singing a song about, you know, wo- aircraft in World War II having dogfights. You know, those are all things that Iron Maiden has done uh, songs on. And, again, you don't see a lot of bands outside heavy metal, at least from my experience, that have such a diverse range of subject matter. Um, Well, here's the thing. I know that there are going to be people who take this the wrong way, but hear me out until I'm done before you you start screaming at your iPod. (laughs) Heavy metal has a tendency to be more cerebral because it's not something that you can dance to. 
That is true. Um, and I am not saying pop music is not cerebral. There are a lot of good uh, industrial and electronic music that does make you think. Um, they don't necessarily have those historical references to them. That's something that, you know, this scene likes more, perhaps, but it's out there. Yeah, and I know Josh was actually saying that he got an A on a history test because of Iron Maiden's song Alexander the Great. Uh, because they there was a section of it about Alexander, and because he was really into that song, it's like, okay, he remembered some of the facts from there that carried over. And Now, didn't Bruce Dickinson have a, doesn't he have a history degree? Or? Yeah. yeah, he does. I thought I heard he does. So, um, in addition to being a world-class fencer and a pilot. <laughs> and so, an author, he wrote children's books. Oh, wow, that I didn't know. Mm -hmm. He's a man of many talents, so... But yeah, I guess that's one of the things I've always and that's one of the things I've always liked about mm -hmm. metal is just a lot of these bands do have this wide variety of subject matter and you know, I also really like concept albums. And you see a lot of bands, you know, metal bands that have done either albums with there where there's a very definite story behind it, like Queensryche's Operation Mindcrime, or sometimes you might have an album that has a lot of a general theme behind all the songs. Uh, like one example I can, at least in my opinion, um, Fate's Warnings album, Night on Brocken. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's really an overlying story, but a lot of the songs seem to have a, a theme of corruption of some kind. Like one of my favorite songs on that album, Damnation. Uh, that's, to me anyway, that's a song about the corruption of the environment. Uh, and... Another good, the title track, Night on Brocken, um, it's a song about uh, corruption of religion or corruption of the soul, I guess you could say. And uh, there's another one, Misfit, about a guy who makes a, who's cast out of his family for being weak and he makes a deal with the devil. So again, it's, that's just my opinion. I don't know if it's intended to be a concept album, but you just really don't see a lot of concept albums in other styles of music. Uh, I don't. I don't know why. Is it? I guess. I don't I don't, concept albums really, though, they took off because of um, Pink Floyd or progressive rock. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't even say Pink Floyd. Um, I don't think Pink Floyd did a real. I mean, it, it was a while before they did one. I think you got to look at Yes. Yes was probably the the forerunners of that, mm -hmm. um, with their Roger Dean and. Okay, and I'm not too familiar with Yes, so... Uh, British, again. Yes. Um, most of their stuff was a little more artsy, a little more airy. Um, you would probably know their songs Roundabout, Long Distance, Runaround. Uh, what was the other one they did? Seen All Good People. Um, okay, yeah, that one I think I've heard. But most, like, they're they're one of those groups where their songs average a good 10 to 12 minutes. You really can't even do, like, a greatest hits package justice because you're going to miss so much. Yeah, and that's, I don't know, it's another thing I've always liked about uh, the metal is, I call me crazy, but I like 7 to 10 minute long songs. I think it goes too far sometimes. So yeah, I mean, me. but, well. Like, Dream Theater turned me off because of the fact that they're, you have to know when to end it. You have to know when you're getting boring. Yeah. Dream Theater never seemed to figure that out. Yeah, I don't Plus, know. Plus, John Petrucci's a fascist. I don't know. For me, it's like five to six minutes is probably the optimal length of a song for me, but that's just my opinion. So, back to the topic of metal. Um, getting a little more, because I know we got a little bit off topic there, but do you think there's such a thing as just heavy metal? Because if you look at it, there's just so many different types of. Uh, genres of metal nowadays. Um, there's the way I've always seen it is that there's two major families of metal, each with their own subgroup. Uh, traditional metal, which would include things like a lot of the early stuff, the new wave of British metal, like you know the Iron Maiden, uh, Black Sabbath, uh, power metal, progressive metal, glam metal, speed metal, Christian metal. Uh, then the other major branch, you have extreme metal, which would include things like thrash, black metal, death metal, doom metal, uh, Viking or pagan metal. 
And then there's kind of like a third family, which is kind of all on its own, and that's other genres. Mm. That would be like experimental metal, symphonic metal, folk metal, and then there's also the different types of alternative metal, like, you know, new metal or rap metal. I, 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 don't, I wouldn't go that far. Um, my... Uh, most of the the splitting happened in the early to mid 1980s. Like, you know, what most people consider as a heavy metal band from the 70s, they they all had their differences, but you you could pretty much you know play small there. New wave of British heavy metal was the first real attempt at your know, the first real making of a change, um, because. What that really was is, if you take a good look at it, because it came out around the same time as the punk scene, it was the metal kids taking some of the DIY punk mentality, some of that angry, politicized rage from the punk guys, and turning it into the metal genre. Um, like, you listen to Venom's first record, it is very low-tech, because that's what they had. Um, and it does sound like a punk album, almost. Um... So then in, what ended up happening is you started to see these differences between the new wave of British heavy metal and everything else. Um, and then things started to branch off from there. Like people would say, well, these groups all kind of write in this particular way. We should call them this. And I, like I wouldn't consider thrash a part of any sort of extreme or, or definitely not doom metal. Doom metal is almost a... Um, I, I think of doom metal as a... A retro thing. They like yeah. here's some guys. They, they want to go back to the way early Black Sabbath was slow, yeah, because plotting, depressing, you know, extreme. Yeah, okay, grindcore, uh, you know, black metal, death metal, <laughs> Tasmanian devil singing. Yeah, okay, <laughs> I can dig that. Yeah, and when Josh and I were talking about it, and he made a point that I think you know, to, to some extent does hold true. Probably one of the reasons that all these, that metal started to splinter off is because you had certain bands they didn't want to be associated with other bands. Like, for example, uh, when glam metal started to become more popular uh, in the, you know, generally about the mid-80s or so. Really you know, picked it, up with Quiet Riot, Metal Health album. But, you know, when you have when you have albums that, you know where they're talk they're just singing songs about you know partying and uh, you know falling in love and stuff like that. You might have bands like Anthrax or you know that didn't want to be anywhere. They didn't want to be associated with that. So okay, no, we're instead of just saying okay, we're metal. That's where okay, we're thrash metal. Um, or because I yeah I believe Anthrax is pretty much been considered thrash through most of their career. Yeah. Uh, though I've heard other people say that they. They pretty much pioneered rap metal with their I'm the Man album. Oh, one song and they get blamed for that. I don't know. Well, <laughs> there was a VH1 special. They weren't blaming them. They were just saying that, you know, mm -hmm. they, they kind of laid the foundation because, well, without Anthrax, there may not have been groups like... I think we should lay the blame on Aerosmith. Oh, because you're gonna they're going to blame anybody, yeah. DMC? Yeah, you're going to blame somebody for corn. And the, please, it, I'm joking, okay? Corn is fine. If, if you're into them, cool. I have nothing against you. You are a metal fan. You like corn. I may not be a big fan of theirs, but I will not knock you for enjoying corn. But I'm trying to be funny, so back off. Yeah. <laughs> but another topic that Josh and I talked about when we did our original um, episode was radio-friendly metal. There was a transition when I would place it around the late 90s, or I'm sorry, not late 90s, early 90s, because around, as I remember in the the 80s, you usually didn't hear as much metal on the radio. Uh, usually any heavy metal was regulated to late, later night, you know, mm -hmm. late night. And of course, when we got cable, uh, there was the Headbangers Ball, which was, of course, late on night at night. But, you know, usually during the day, the closest you could get to metal would be something like Van Halen or... Poison. Poison. White Snake. Yep. And so they, you know, again, you had these radio-friendly bands that were, to some extent, they were kind of like watered-down versions of other types of metal. But, you know, that radio play, of course, helped them 
fill arenas, and sell more albums. So do you consider radio-friendly metal to be a good or bad thing for the genre? Hmm. It depends on the group. I, I, I know that's going to come up, come up as a little uh, contentious with some people, but it really does depend on the group. Um, there were some, some bands that were, you know, dyed in the wool, blood through their veins, heavy metal, that made stuff that could be played on the radio. Uh, Judas Priest, mm -hmm. Ozzy Osbourne. Um, but... I, I think probably the examples you guys were thinking of was there were two albums that came out in that time that really seemed to take what they thought at the time was their, their thrash and then tried to make it accessible. Were Metallica Black album, yep. Megadeth's Countdown to Extinction. Yeah. Um, Countdown to Extinction, I didn't think made it as accessible as the Black album did. Do yeah. I think the Black album was a bad idea? No. Yeah, I liked the Black album. I mean, and I know, because, again, Josh and I talked about um, Metallica and how metal became more mainstream. Because uh, he, his, one of his biggest criticisms of Metallica, and he didn't just say it when we were trying to record that episode, he's talked about this on his own shows as well, mm -hmm. where Metallica decided they didn't want to be musicians, they wanted to be rock stars. So that made them transition into this more, again, radio-friendly metal that would appeal to the masses because uh, I, I i gotta disagree because that there's still some musicianship in those albums even the ones i don't like i don't know from what i've heard of uh of stanger or saint anger however they pronounce it saint anger yeah that one i didn't ugh, i don't know it's a better I mean, record than people give it credit for yeah i mean i've only heard that like the first couple uh. songs and uh, I remember we were talking about it, and you told me the... I wasn't the only one who thought this, but is Lars beating on a coffee can or a biscuit tin? The thing about Metallica is um, a lot of people accuse them mostly of selling out with the Black Album, and i got to disagree. Yeah. First off, I'm not entirely certain they sold out all the way. Um, I have I have my own theories about this whole thing. If 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 any of their records would be considered a sellout, it would be Load. Load yeah. was the sellout, and it wasn't because of anything even all that musical. If you listen to Load without looking at the cover and the interior artwork and all of the design, it, there 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 is some form of evolution between the Black Album to it. It's it's just Metallica took their their style from the Black Album and added more blues references, and for some reason, uh, Hammett was infatuated with his wah pedal hmm. around that time. Every freaking song is a wah pedal, but where I saw them more as a sellout in that case was in the fashion of it. You know, everybody had to get the haircut. And... The hair didn't bother me. Anth all the guys from Anthrax cut off all their hair, and they still made some serious, you know, top-line metal albums. It was Metallica trying to be hip, wearing the hip clothes and wearing makeup and doing Lollapalooza. And, you know, they their, their early website, They when Load was released, there was even something on there saying, well, we're not metal anymore. That's when you sold out. Yeah, because I, I will agree when you said that the black metal is really not a bad album and it gets more hate than it deserves. Cause, I think St. Anger does too. See, because I remember uh, so the, like Mike Trudell, the drummer, may he rest in peace, he was the, Dan and I were in a band together for a while and uh, he, Mike was our first drummer. And I remember when we were talking about uh, Metallica back then, and this was when the, the Load album was coming out. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, it's like, because of course the earlier Metallica albums were, you know, your hardcore thrash type albums. The Black album was an attempt to be more of that radio-friendly mainstream metal. Where, but then when Load came out, it was like, okay, it's a lot more mellow than we're used to. Because the opinion he had of the Black album is, it's not the Metallica we're used to, but it's still a, a good metal album. Load was one. It had a few songs that were pretty heavy. Like I like King Nothing. Uh, that's one. Of, 
that's one of the songs I remember from that album, and I thought it was a pretty good song. I liked it, all right. Um, yeah. My thing is, is that you could have taken Load, Reload, cut it in half, and put one disc. You could have, you Basically, you could have taken all of the good songs off of Load, Reload, and then add the one they did for Mission Impossible 2, um, put them on one album, and it would have been a hell of a great record. There was a lot of filler on those two albums, yeah. too. There were some pretty awful songs in there with some of the good ones. Like, I Disappear was a great song. That's the one from um, uh, Mission Impossible 2, I think it was. Yeah. Um, Ain't My Bitch was a good song. Uh, Until It Sleeps, Fuel. Fuel is Two awesome. by fours. Is all right. That one's actually one of the ones where you're really going to see the blues influence. Um, but I will say this. Next time I go through a drive-thru, I'm going to do... I saw this on, on, on online. So I can help you. I'm just going to go, Give me food, give me fries, give me salad on the side! <laughs> so, yeah, and Stanger, again, that, or St. Anger, that one, again, I've only heard, like, one song, one or two songs, and it was pretty forgettable. When, and you, listen, I guess, when you understand what the group was going through at the time, you got to watch the movie Some Kind of Monster. Yeah, I remember we That's watched when that. I watched that movie, listened to the album again, and all of a sudden it's like, boom. The album made perfect sense, and I I really like it. Because I remember they were saying, wasn't it like Bob Rock was saying that they wanted it to sound like a band getting together for the first time? To jam only, in the garage. Only that band is Metallica. And that's not even the part that I think made the album pop for me. It was the fact that they hated each other for, <laughs> you know, listening to Lars and, and Hetfield just go at it. Yeah, I remember you were saying it's like watching that movie, it's like almost like, Kirk was the only one that really came out squeaky clean. Yeah, uh, and then was there? Isn't their latest one Death Magnetic, or did they release another one after that? Uh, they're in the midst of creating a new record. Um, they released Death Magnetic, which was a tight, tight record. I wasn't a fan of Rick Rubin's production. If if they would have made that record, that music, but with Bob Rock's production, I think that would have been a much better album. Yeah, and and um, well, then now they have Rob. I. I'm probably going to totally mispronounce Bob the last Shio. name. Yeah. He's a good bassist. He, yeah. I, I like him. I remember some of his work from Suicidal Tendencies. He was a Suicidal, and he was an Ozzy's, with Ozzy. Ozzy's group. Um, and I, I know that, because I have the remastered of Blizzard of Oz, and I know that the, and I know there's people that don't like Ozzy for this, but he had uh, Rob, and I forgot the other guy's name. He, you know, they overdubbed the bass and the drum parts, mm -hmm. and didn't they do that so he didn't have to pay the old bassist and drummer royalties? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was that I can agree was kind of a low. Of, and yeah. it wasn't even Ozzy as much as Sharon. Sharon's mm -hmm. just an awful human being. But, and that does bring us to the next topic, and that's how bands can evolve or change over time. And in addition to Metallica, one band that I think is an excellent example, Therian. They're a Swedish band. Their earliest, al their first couple albums were pretty much your standard death metal albums with the wailing guitars and the incoherent screaming, but eventually they started to evolve where they started to have better constructed songs, they started to incorporate opera, song opera singers and classical instruments into their songs. Um, I have to say, though, I'm not... I don't know the the most the last album I heard by them. I know it's not their most recent, but I the name fell out of my head. It's the one after uh, Lemuria. Are you talking after, about Gothic Kabbalah or yes. Citra Ara? Uh, Gothic Kabbalah. That you're one I too, wasn't much for. You're too behind. Then. Yeah. Um. After because Citra Ara came out after Gothic Kabbalah, and then they released one a couple of years ago called Lifluers Demal. Yeah, because personally. I think with Therian, and some albums if you want to check them out, I recommend Thaley, uh, Secret of the Runes, uh, Volvin, and Crowning of Atlantis. Those, I think, are their best albums. Uh, I said after... I would replace Crowning of Atlantis with Deguile. Deguile was pretty good, too, yes. Um, there are albums after Secret of the Runes, uh, Lemuria, and... Sirius B. Sirius B, yeah. I like those. They're okay. Got but yeah, I don't know. Gothic Kabbalah, I just couldn't get I into. I liked it. I just, I, I, to me, it suffered the load problem in that they made a double album and they really only need to give us needed to give us half of it. Yeah, and so that's an interesting band to check out because, like I said, experimental. There, you do see a huge change in the style of music over the years. 
One group I gotta tell you that changed not for the better was Megadeth. Yeah, and I um, never really got into them, so you'll have to take this. Mu- one. Musically, they were always okay. Dave, Dave's a great guitar player. The problem is, is, as the years have gone by, Dave has lost his freaking mind, ah. and it shows. You kind of see him becoming more of an uh, what was that guy's name? An Alex Jones conspiracy theory hyper right wing guy. Uh, you know, starting with the system has failed, you know, and it's unfortunate. And it's in his music, or yeah, he's one of those people that, and I hate to say this, I know there, some might get upset with me with saying this, but it's like I wish Dave would go back on the drugs, <laughs> so he maybe he'd get his mind back because he obviously lost it when he thought. Never mind. But yeah, and uh, another group that. I like, which, I don't know, after, I'm sure this happens with a lot of groups that are around for a while, but unfortunately sometimes you get to a group where they reach a certain point and then you just kind of lose interest in them. Fate's Warning is one of those groups for me. Uh, I'm going to disagree with you. We'll have a talk about that. (laughs) They're another group that my sister introduced me to. Um, And I mentioned their their, uh, Night on Brocken, their first album earlier. But their first three albums, Night on Brocken, Spectre Within and Awaken the Guardian are to this day three of my favorite music albums, period. Uh, and one thing that's actually kind of cool is, I mean, they've got kind of the swords and sorcery theme behind them, which is maybe that's one of the reasons I really got into them. Then they came out with No Exit, which this is where they got a new singer. And that's one of those things where, I don't know, when you get a new singer for a band, it can help or hinder the group. Mm-hmm. Um, I personally like don't like didn't like their new singer who's he's still with the band right Ray, Ray? yeah um because after for some reason after uh, after their no exit album they they became less heavy for me I mean I'm not saying that their bands are their other albums are horrible because I there were a few songs I liked on Parallels and a few I liked on Perfect <laughs> Symmetry but I'll agree I don't know with they you. just they per- just lost that energy here's, for me. here's where I will agree with you Perfect Symmetry was a weak album that was the bottom for me Perfect Symmetry it, it has got one or two songs but for the most part yeah because um, that album but Parallels was tight and key you know um i really liked inside out but the one that really i mean it was to me it's probably their best album all round is a pleasant shade of gray it, it came out in 97 it was one song mm-hmm. and i got to give them I'm, credit I'm because not, not all not every band can pull something mm-hmm. like that off I'm not going to begin to try to describe to you the lyrical content of that album. You need to listen to it and come to your own conclusion what it's really about. To me, the album will always remind me for some strange reason of walking through House on the Rock, but that's another story for another time. Okay. Um, so if you're talking about heaviness, it started to come back a little bit with Disconnected, which is a really another really good one. Um, the most recent album they had was Darkness in a Different Light, I believe is the name of it. Um, if you see it, it's it's white cover. I think it's got like a gray crane, um, origami crane on it. Um, a lot of the heavier guitar riffs are back. Um, one of the guys that left the group from that era Jim came Mateos, back. Jim Mateos? No, no, no. Uh, well, he's, he's, he's the only original guy, but okay. uh, Frank came back for this album. Okay. So... Um. Yeah, and I guess uh, I I wish we lived in Germany because there isn't it this summer. Next gonna, summer, twenty sixteen. Okay, they're actually going to do a reunion where they're going to have their mm-hmm. original singer John Arch uh, come back and do some of the songs from you know their earlier albums. Mm-hmm. So uh, if I win the lottery. I would so go to Germany for that. Well, you don't. If you ever wanted to hear what the band would have sounded like with John, you pick up the album Arch Matheos. Um, it's basically four of the five members of the current Fates Warning with the original singer. Oh, cool. um, I'll have to check that out because I haven't. Because I know uh, John Arch, he did release 
um, a solo album, and he released another one not too long ago. That's the one I'm talking about. Because, yeah, the first one... was two songs. Yeah, and I can't remember the name of it, but it was like Twist two really... Fate. Yeah, two really long songs. <laughs> this, the one that just came out 2010, 2011, it was a Sympathetic Resonance, I think it was called, or Sympathetic Free, something, Sympathetic something. And it was it was John and Jim, along with Joey Vera, the current bass player, Bobby... Jarzombek, the current drummer, and Frank Oresti, the current guitar player. <laughs> so, it, it's a good, it's a good record. Um, I got to like I said, I think Parallels holds a special place. Songs like uh, the Eleventh Hour really, really tight. Yeah, and just for me, because Awaken the Guardian is one of those albums that's really special for me. Because mm -hmm. uh, back when I was in middle school, I had a paper route, and I remember I would listen to that album and. Uh, Spectre Within all the time. I would listen to each of those albums at least once a week. Uh, and Fate, the uh, Awaken the Guardian, I went through like three or four tape copies of that album just because I would listen to it so much I would wear the tape out. Mm -hmm. So those were, yeah, those were again, probably, those are still some of my favorite albums to mm -hmm. this day. Uh, another another band that, that has evolved more than they're ever given credit for is Judas Priest. What you can do is you can take any one of their records, and I will guarantee you, with the exception, of course, of Rockarola and the one that just came out, because they were first and last, every one of their albums sounds like a cross between the one before it and the one after it. <laughs> so are they, they kind of had the... They have a, slow, a slow evolution, but it's there. You can't compare British Steel to Ram It Down or... Mm even Painkiller to Nostradamus or um, Sin After Sin to um, Defenders of the Faith. They're very different albums. And I like it when bands do that, and that's one of the reasons I've always liked Therian is because oh, Christopher Johnson, Johnson the, their main guitarist and music writer, he said in an interview once that his goal was to never make the same album twice. Mm -hmm. And it does show in that all of his album, all their albums do have something that the others didn't. A lot of good bands do that. Yeah, Blind Guardian's good at that too. I haven't, I have not listened to as much Blind Guardian as I should have. Well, get cracking. I, I guess I got to get on the ball and get some Blind Guardian because I've listened to a few some of their stuff and it's good. But another group that I have listened to for many years and have just really enjoyed and would really recommend to anyone getting into metal, Halloween. This is one of those band, those situations where, despite the fact that they have gone through their lineup changes and they did change singers, the band never lost interest for me. Um, I mean, I really, I like their old singer, um, Michael Kai. Michael Kiske. Michael Kiske. And Andre, I liked their new singer. I mean, when Andre took over, I thought he really brought a lot of new energy and a lot of new creativity to the band. I... I prefer Darius, and I know a lot of people um, like Kiski better, but Kiski's kind of a nut job, <laughs> so it ain't happening. Um, but musically, they've they've the, remained. The past two or three records have not been all that interesting. I, I got to be honest with you, I have them all, um, and pretty much it was like, oh, keep your seven keys of the legacy. Yeah, that was okay. And it had some really good gambling songs with the devil songs. was kind of. Eh, there's one or two on there. And then Seven Sinners. This is kind of boring. And then I don't even remember the name of the last one. It's like I listened to it a couple of times. I, absolutely my God Given it. Right? Or that's the that's new, the that's new one, one that's, that's coming, coming out. out and I, the cover and the name and the song scare the Nikes out of me. Yeah, I'm like, oh no. Oh no, have they been hanging around Dave Mustaine? <laughs> I haven't I haven't taken a look at any of their the, I've seen the cover of it, I just haven't mm -hmm. had a chance to look at any of the songs yet. But, but to me that I, I still think the best album Halloween made was uh, Master of the Rings. Master of the Rings was really good. That was um That was the one right after Andy Darris joined the group. The but I would have to say Keeper of the Keep uh, Keeper of the Ring? No. Seven Keys? No, the the Ring one, yeah, Master, Master of the, of the Rings. Rings. Yeah, that one. Um, is that not the one you just said? Yes. Okay. I must not be fully awake, even though it's uh, 4.13 in the afternoon as we're recording this. But, yeah, I mean, I, 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 overall, I do like what Andre has brought to the band. Um, so what are some other favorite bands that you've listened to, whether they've evolved or changed or not? The Blue Oyster Cult. 
Um, for those of you who are big old nerds, the greatest part about the Blue Oyster Cult is the fact that when you read their lyrics, they're big old nerds. Eric Bloom, the uh, guitarist slash lead singer, he is not the lead singer that you know if you only know Don't Fear the Reaper. Um, that was actually the other guitarist's one of the few times he sang. That's the ironic part. Um, he wrote a lot of their, their lyrical content that comes off as very sci-fi. He's a very big sci-fi oh, yeah. fan. Veteran of the Psychic he, Wars. He was the one. He wanted to write a song. This is a cool story about um, the Elric saga. And he went and talked to the author of those, Michael Moorcock, who they ended up becoming good friends. And Michael Moorcock wrote three or four different songs for the group. Besides the song Black Blade, which was about Stormbringer, um, he, he co-wrote the lyrics to Veteran of the Psychic Wars off of um, Fire of Unknown Origin, and he wrote the lyrics to The Great Sun Jester off of Mirrors. So there's a lot of... The cool thing about Blue Oyster Cult is they took the early heavy metal sound from the 70s, the Zeppelin, Deep Purple, Sabbath sound, and then they added in some of that, um, that, that Yes and Rush, um, we'll just call it geekiness, um, <laughs> and a little bit of the psychedelia mm -hmm. of your um, druggish progressive rock and, you know, sci-fi stories and heavy metal, the magazine, and... That's kind of where those guys sit. Um, I don't have any of their albums past Imaginos, which came out in 87, because anything after that is kind of hard to find, unfortunately. I'm trying to find them. But, again, I do recommend it. They are more than just Burning For You and Don't Fear the Reaper. And Godzilla. And Godzilla. <laughs> you got Astronomy is such a good song. Um Veteran of the Psychic Wars again. There's a song called Joan Crawford, which is about... It, it came out after the movie Mommy Dearest, and the whole premise of the song is Joan Crawford coming back to life as a zombie. <laughs> uh, because she was scary. If you've seen Mommy Dearest, she's scary. Yep. Um, now another... I'm sorry, go ahead. Like most of the albums, Spectres... Um, Agents of Fortune and Fire of Unknown Origin. You'll 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 enjoy them. I yeah. would imagine. My sister also got me into another band that I've really enjoyed, uh, the Dread Crew of Oddwood. They're kind of hard to pin down. They're basically heavy metal with Celtic influence, a pirate theme played on acoustic instruments. So they have a very original, very interesting sound. Uh, they've got three albums out so far. Um, They've got uh, Rain the Helm, Rocktopus, and their new one that I'm the name just fell out of my head. But again, very good, very interesting to check out. They use no small amount of profanity in their songs, but hey, they're pirate themed rock, so what do you expect? I'm, I'm imagining that they sound like the, those two guys who sing songs at the end of that cartoon, My Son Likes Jake and the Neverland Pirates. I'll play some for you afterwards on recording. So they're, like I said, they've. They've got a, they've got a lot of really good songs. I know they did a, they did a medley of some of the songs from Legend of Zelda: Ocarina of Time, and they do have some songs that, even though they're acoustic, they are heavier than some of the the rock songs I've heard. So that's another group to check out if you're into the into things that are really different and kind of have their own sound to them. Uh, Dread Crew of Oddwood, another group that. I haven't gotten into as much, but I really do enjoy um, Von Kanto. They're acapella metal. I mean, they're not true acapella because they do have a drummer, but they've got a male singer and a, a female singer, and then they've got a couple other people that use distortion on their voices to simulate guitars. So that's another group that's interesting to check out. Uh, Night Wish is another one that I've gotten into over the years. You're welcome. Yes, you're the one that got me into Night Wish, so uh, um, thanks for that. <laughs> I could go on for hours, to be oh, honest, yeah, and, and that's not fair. Um, obviously, Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, Dio. Iron Maiden. Iron Maiden, Deep Purple, please. Again, there are some of these groups that I'm mentioning that you're like, oh, those are the guys you do smoke in the water. They do more than that, yes. and if you... Highway Star is give an awesome them a song. 
finding star. There you go. Let's pick the second most obvious. Um, the song Burn, which is one of the ones they did with David Coverdale instead of Ian Gillen, is one of the most awesomely heavy 70s metal songs of all time. Knocking at your back door, Perfect Strangers, um, The Battle Rages On. Uh, they're a much more expansive group than people give them credit for. Um, but I, I feel like we have not discussed, there's a couple of groups that we have not discussed enough because if it weren't for them, none of these other groups would probably exist. Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath. Oh, Along yeah. with Deep Purple, they were considered the original three. Zeppelin and Sabbath for the longest time argued against the terminology of heavy metal, and it was partially because it was considered, especially in the 60s, it was considered a, a pejorative by Rolling Stone. But you know what? John Wenner can go to hell. <laughs> yeah, because I think, didn't they like to be called more like blues rock? Uh, They liked the term downer rock. Okay, that's At least that's what Bill Ward liked. <laughs> yeah, and, and this is something that I'm sure we could explore this um, topic on another episode, because we're getting close to the... Uh, close to the the, the one-hour mark here, so... But everybody loves Zeppelin. Oh, yeah. Go and listen to the song um, Achilles' Last Stand. It really oh, yeah, says all there is to say about the perfect bombast of Led Zeppelin, even though Percy's lost his mind. I've, I've always been more of a Battle of Evermore guy myself, which I've heard some people say it's it's a kind of a loose interpretation of the battle of uh from Pelennor Field. Yes. In And actually um the part the of sisters the sisters from Heart actually do a really good cover of that song. Yeah, that's because there was a there was a rock journalist who um he was reviewing a Heart record and he says he said the song Barracuda is one of the best songs Led Zeppelin ever wrote. <laughs> Ouch. Um but I I'll honestly I know a lot of people my age never got a chance to see Zeppelin live in concert. And if you want to blame anybody, because John Paul Jones and Jimmy Page are all up for it. Jason Bonham said he would do it. You want to complain about somebody? You want to know whose fault it is? It's Percy's. Percy? Robert Plant. Oh, okay. They called him Percy back in the day because of his kind of flamboyant, over-the-top persona he had on stage. And that's, you know... So they, they always referred to him and the road, or Jimmy Page and the road crew and Bonzo used to call him Percy. <laughs> Another cool story about those groups. Um, you were talking about the myths and legends and tales and stuff a few shows back. Um, urban well, legends ur and such? This is an urban legend that turned out to be true. The infamous Black Zeppelin. Um... Not necessarily in the way that people think it turned out, but it, it did, in fact, happen. The Black Zeppelin rumor was the fact that, supposedly, Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin got together and recorded an album. That would be pretty cool. That never happened, but there was a time in the studio. Here's what ended up happening. They were, um, Percy and Bonzo were from originally from the Midlands, from Birmingham which is where all of the guys from Sabbath were. So, as it turns out, there was a point, it was around the time, I believe, according to Bill Ward, who re who, who had the story, it was either around when Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath, or Sabotage, so it was 75, 76, somewhere in there, they were recording. And Zeppelin was re rehearsing nearby. Um, one of the contentions, apparently, that in Led Zeppelin was the fact that Bonzo wanted to be able to use double bass drums, and hmm. Page thought it would overpower him. <laughs> so it was no, because Page was in charge. He was the infamous lead wallet. Um, so Bonzo in a huff storms off, and he ends up at the Black Sabbath rehearsals, insisting that he plays. Now, Bonzo and Bill Ward were really close friends, so Bill Ward's like, yeah, go ahead. So, Bonzo, all of a sudden, he's like, I want to play Supernaut. Because Supernaut was his favorite Black Sabbath song. So, they're playing Bonzo, Geezer, Tony, they're playing Supernaut, and Ozzy's singing, except for the fact every time 
the term supernaut would have came up in the lyrics, Ozzy couldn't get it because Bonzo would be screaming it because he had the face of a five-year-old <laughs> child in the candy store because he enjoyed, enjoyed it because Bill had double bass drums. And then eventually uh, Plant and uh, Jones came over and they were all hanging out and jamming around. Nothing was ever recorded according to Bill Ward, though. But there was a lot of talk, and they were all close friends, except for Paige, who was considerably—I wouldn't say considerably—he was like five or six years older than the other guys. So he, you know, he really wasn't in that that bracket. So he, you know, he didn't hang out with them as much. Plus, Paige was on the heroin around that time, rumored. Well, we're about the hour mark here, so it's—I uh, think it's time to close this topic for the day. Um, so again, I'd like to thank my guest for this episode, Dan, from Radio Free Borderlands. Thank you. And uh, so please visit his website. Again, he focuses mostly on D&D. And I pop in. I break into his house when he's recording every now and then and force myself upon his podcast. Or get invited sometimes. That happens too, right? Most of the time. <laughs> but check out Radio Free Borderlands. And please feel free to... Uh, subscribe to both our podcasts. Please like them. Leave them a review. We do appreciate it. Uh, please visit Point of Insanity Game Studio on Facebook. Uh, feel free to like the page. And again, if you do have any ideas for topics that you'd like to see uh, me cover, uh, or if you want Dan back or one of my other guests back, please feel free to leave comments. I do appreciate them. And to end this episode... Uh, I'm going to do it a little differently than we usually do. I'm going to end it with a song called Crashing Thunder. Now, as mentioned, Dan and I were in a heavy metal band back in college, and this song was actually written by our roommate, Jeff. Part of it. Yeah. And, Let's face it, we should all take credit. We had to clean it up a lot. Yeah, and uh, I always thought it was a really fun song to play, and it was basically Jeff wrote the lyrics. And he was trying to describe the story of a biker in a post-apocalyptic uh, setting trying to avenge uh, his girlfriend. Kind of a cross between Mad Max and um, the Gunslinger. <laughs> <laughs> so I always saw, I always liked that song. I always thought it was a really fun song to play. I don't know why. Uh, for some reason, I always it always put a smile on my face to play that song. Because it kind of has a swing beat. Yeah, so I was on the I played the bass on this one. Uh Dan was rhythm guitar and he did the vocals. Uh again Jeff was our lead guitarist and then the drummer on this one was a guy we knew called Kurt who unfortunately We lost... called him Kurt because his name was Kurt. Yes. <laughs> uh Kurt was again the drummer and lost contact with him after college. But there's a story behind that, but not going to get into that. So Hope you enjoyed the episode, and happy gaming, and enjoy Crashing Thunder. <laughs>